Well, if you would turn with me, please, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. This is, again, the word of God Almighty. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Please pray with me again. Sovereign Lord, we ask that you would bless your word and bless the hearers of it. Oh Lord, we ask that you would bless the preacher of your word, that you would purify his mouth, that you would give him the ability and the joy to declare your word unto your people. We ask, O Father, that you would bless the hearers of your word, that it would come to them as honey, as delightful, as edifying, as something to grow their faith. We ask these things, O God, in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Bible teaches us that God upholds and directs, disposes, And governs all his creatures and all their actions. That is to say, all events and all things from the greatest of those things to the least of those things. That is to include sparrows and the hairs on our head. Now, this is not surprising that God directs and governs and disposes and controls all things. God is the almighty creator. It is only by his sovereign will and omnipotent power that anything comes to exist in the first place. And it is only by his sovereign will and omnipotent power that anything continues to exist. As we read in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11... The Lord created all things, and by his will they exist and were created. But what we're seeing here in Romans 8.28 is even more than that. Not only does God govern all things, but here we see that God governs all things, especially for the good of his people. You see, the the first thing we talked about is God's providence. God ruling over his creation. And the second thing we have talked about is God's special providence. God ruling over all of his creation, especially for the good of his people. And that is the message of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God's special providence. We will consider this passage under three points. The first is the privilege of God's special providence. The privilege. Secondly, the people. The people to whom this privilege pertains. And then thirdly, the purpose. The purpose from which that privilege proceeds. So we're going to look at the privilege, the people, and the purpose of God's special providence. Can I throw another P in there? Look with me first at the privilege. There are a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know the secrets of God's hidden will. 
We don't know what tomorrow will bring, whether it will be good or evil, whether it will be easy or difficult. We do not know those things. Back in verse 26 of this chapter, we read that we don't even know what we should pray for as we ought. You see, there are many things that are a mystery to us. We don't know the secrets of God's hidden will. We know that God has decreed things that he has not revealed to us. You see, there are many things that we do not know and we are intended not to know, by the way. God intentionally does not tell us all of the future. But here the apostle says one thing we do know, and what is that? We know this, that all things work together for good. How do we know this? Do you notice that the apostle begins with the assumption, with the assertion rather, that we already know this. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because God tells us, for one thing. Think of our call to worship. I will cry out to the God most high, to God who performs all things for me. You see, the psalmist is saying God does everything for him. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 12 and 13 says this, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. He continues, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There are a number of scriptures we could turn to, but you understand this. The scriptures are filled with assertions that God works for the good of his people. There is a basic assumption that it will go well with those who are God's people. There are numerous examples of this in the Bible, are there not? We think of Job. Did not all of Job's sufferings culminate in a good and glorious plan for Job? How about Joseph? We saw the example of Joseph. We read about him. All of Joseph's life, even the difficulties, right? The the pit and the Potiphar's house and the prison, all of these things worked together for the good of both Joseph and Joseph's brothers. You remember Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Did not God work all things for their good? Do you remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said before they went into the fiery furnace? They said, our God is able to save us, O king. But if not, know that we will not bow down and serve you. What were they confessing right there? We trust that even in a fire, even if we should have a fiery death, somehow, some way, God can work this for our good. You know this because of your own experiences. You have tasted bad things. You've undergone difficulties. And and even in this life, you see how those difficulties, 
those illnesses, those afflictions, those heartbreaks, that sorrow, those things happen to be the very things which God uses to cause you to grow in grace. He sanctifies you by means of difficulties. And you have seen it in your own life. You know that if it were never dark, we would never see the stars. You know that diamonds are made by pressure. You've experienced this. You know that this affliction is working good in you. But most importantly, you know this by faith. You believe that whatever goes on, God himself is able to keep his promises to you. You know, when we, when we purchase a house, for instance, we take out a loan. A bank gives us a loan on credit. And they're saying, whatever happens, we think you're going to pay us back. What I'm asking you, Christian, is what is God's credit in your eyes? Whatever evil comes your way, are you persuaded that God will, in fact, pay you back? Will God ultimately do good for you? And that's what the apostle means when he says, we know, we are confident that God will make all things good for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. This is the Lord speaking. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you future and a hope. You know, sometimes... Christians will say, well, that's not for you, Christian. That's in Jeremiah. That's to the exiles. Well, yes and no. Yes, this was given to the folks in Jeremiah's day. But what I want you to understand is that if you are God's people, the Lord your God changes not. And as God's people, God still has good thoughts for you. His thoughts for you, his plans are for peace, to do you good and not evil. That's a promise for you because you are God's people. So what is it that we know? Well, Paul says, we know all things work together for good. The word good means that which is beneficial. Now, this does not mean a merely temporary, earthly good, of course. All of God's creatures receive good from God in this sense, don't they? Everything receives sunshine and rain. Here, good refers to ultimate and eternal good, everlasting good, the kind of good which lasts forever and can never be taken away. Now, this does not mean that the things we receive in this life are always good in themselves. Joseph really suffered, right? The things his brothers did to him really were evil. They were not pleasant at the time. But the promise is this. What his brothers meant for good, God meant it for, excuse me, what his brothers meant for evil, God means it for good. That's the promise to you. 
There's no promise that you will always be comfortable. That you will always be free from trouble. That you will go through this life without sorrow or difficulties, without loss, without pain. In fact, that is one of the things that you are promised. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But the promise from God is that even those troubles, in fact, those troubles especially, are going to work for your ultimate good. It does not mean that you will experience all of the good which God promises you in this life. Many times you will. But you have to accept this fact, beloved. There are certain kinds of goodness which cannot even be experienced in this life. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you see that? You've not seen it, you've not heard it, you've not imagined it. These are the good things God has prepared for you. And you cannot even experience them yet here on this earth. What then is your ultimate good? Right? God promises you good, but good ultimately, finally. What is your ultimate good? Well, beloved, your ultimate good is the culmination of your salvation. The Bible calls this your glorification. Your glorification. That means your perfection. When you are finally brought into complete conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, then you are glorified. And that is your ultimate good. You see, God is working out a plan to bring you to a state of glory. And there is no higher good for the human being than to be finally and fully conformed to the image of God. That's why you were made. And that is the promise of the state in which you will exist forever and ever, lacking nothing. Now, which things work towards that glory? Well, Paul says all things, we take that to be all creatures and all their actions, all events, things we consider to be accidents, things we consider to be coincidence. Yes, of course, afflictions and sorrows and illness and injuries and even death itself serves the ultimate good of God's people. How do all these things work together? You notice it's not just that These individual things are for our good, but that these things work together. Matthew Henry called this the concurrence of all of God's providences. Meaning God himself is weaving together, working out all of these things so that no individual thing is left out. They are all together working for your good. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, taking the back off of a watch and seeing the inside of an analog watch. 
and you've got these little wheels and springs and levers. And, and to someone like myself, I look at that and I wonder, how do all of these various parts work together? Oftentimes, looking at our lives, it's hard to see how these various parts work together. But beloved, God knows how to work them together. Many of the medicines that we take, do you know they're made up of poisonous compounds? Poisonous individual elements, rather? And, and these, these things, if taken in the wrong dose or in the wrong mixture, are fatal. But a skilled chemist or a skilled pharmacist or skilled physician can mix the right medicine together in the right dosage and apply it to the right ailment. And that's what God is doing. He's working together all of these things to ensure your ultimate good. What kind of things? Good things as well as bad things. And oftentimes, especially the bad things work towards our good. My daughter used to have a, a rock tumbler. You guys remember rock tumblers? And you, you can take this you know, ugly piece of gravel and throw it in the rock tumbler and it spins, I don't know, six to eight weeks it seems like. And it, and it tumbles. But when you pull it out, you have this beautiful, polished, remarkable, lovely thing. It went in ugly and came out beautiful. Now, rocks don't have feelings, but you understand that in order for the rock to become beautified, it had to be ground down, right? Tumbling over and over again in that tumbling media, polishing it, working the edges off it, smoothing it, revealing what's underneath. That's very much what our life is like as Christians, right? We're in that rock tumbler, all those things, the motion, the gravity, the tumbling media, all of that is working together to beautify that rock. And that's what God is doing with you. Rounding off the edges, smoothing things out, beautifying things, revealing the work that is underneath. Paul says, we know that all things work together for our good. Let me ask you, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you trust God enough? Is his credit with you good enough to say, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know why I have this affliction. I don't know why I have experienced this problem. I don't know when this will end. But I know God. And I know that he is good and his plans for me are good. And he will work this for my good. Can you say that? Do not rest. Do not let this thought escape your brain until you have settled this question, dear friends. Do you know that God will work all things for your good? You see, it's important that you know that because it is not for all people that God works things to their good. And that brings us to our second point. The people who receive this privilege of God's special providence, rather. You will see there are two descriptions of people in this verse, and the first is those who love God. Those who love God is a very common description of God's people in the Bible. I'll give you just a couple of examples, and immediately others will spring to your minds. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 says this, 
the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, the description of God's people are those who love him. Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. See, again, the Lord preserves who? Those who love him. That's a description of God's people. John Calvin said that the love of God, this category, this description, those who love God, the love of God is the whole of true religion. The whole of true religion. He's kind of paraphrasing Jesus Christ who said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What Jesus is describing here is the same description of the people who will receive good from God. Now there's a clarification we must make here. Those who love God is a description of who receives the privilege. It's not a declaration of why they receive it. Do you see that difference? Paul is here speaking of who will receive the privilege of God's special providence. Who will receive it? Those who love God. Why will they receive it? Well, not first because they love God. What you will actually see is that they love God because God himself has first purposed for them to receive good from him. As the Apostle John said, we love him because he first loved us. You see, God first gives you goodness and then you learn to love him and then the description those who love God becomes an accurate description of you. It's not as if you decide to love God and then God, as a reward for your love to him, gives you good things. You understand that. Rather, God decides to give you good things. And those good things convince you of his love for you. And you being convinced of his love for you, respond in love to him. The Apostle John again said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God goes first. And then we follow. We read, we read about this in chapter 5 of Romans, in verse 5. It says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That's what makes us those who love God, right? God pours his love into us, and now we are characterized by love for God. Nevertheless, it is true that it is they who love God who will receive the benefits and no others. Therefore, it's extremely important to know whether you love God. I'm going to give you this morning two marks, two ways of of knowing your love for God, two ways of measuring it and examining it. First of all, before we do that, though, 
you understand what love is. When something is uppermost in your affections, you know what it is to love something. And, and you have to ask yourself, is that your heart towards God? Do you prefer him? Is he uppermost in your affections? Do you think of him? And are your thoughts of him lovely thoughts? But here are two things from scripture that can help you to measure your love for God. And the first is obedience. Obedience. Sometimes Christians are allergic to obedience, but God is not. Jesus Christ was not allergic to obedience. The apostle Paul was not. Those who love God are not ashamed of obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. You see that? Those who keep his commandments are those who love him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So in other words, John is describing for us what it looks like to love God. What does it look like, John? You keep his commandments. Pay special attention to the last part of that verse from 1 John 5, 3. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and... His commandments are not burdensome. It's not as if he is saying there's no difficulty in keeping the commandments of God. And it's not as if he's saying that we always and only keep the commandments of God and perfectly so. What he is saying is God's commandments themselves are not a burden to you. They are not harsh. They are not severe, but rather they are something that you, motivated by love for God, delight in. They are not a burden. You love God. And more than that, being his child, you trust that what he says is good for you. You trust his way is the right way. Therefore, it is your delight to obey him. And so, one of the marks of loving God is an obedience for God. An obedience that is motivated out of that love. It is not a mercenary or compulsory obedience, but rather one that says, God is my father. I am his child. The things he tells me are good for me. I will do them, and I will do them with great happiness. A second mark is following from that, and that is love for God's people. So love God and love for God's people. The Apostle John again says, those who love God, love God's children. In 1 John 4, 20 and 21, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's confused? Nope. He's mistaken? Nope. John says he is a liar. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him. 
that he who loves God must love his brother. Here again, we do not boast of a perfect love for all of God's people. Let's be honest. Some of God's people are pretty unlovable. Right? But we do have a heart that is inclined to them. And we are aware of a family relationship. And we say, I wish (laughs) I didn't have to love you perhaps. But you know what? God is my father and God is your father. Therefore, I love you. Do you see? This is a love for God's people compelled by a love for God. We love them even as siblings in a family. And so those are two marks of love for God. That is obedience to him and that obedience to the point of loving his children. There is now a second description in this passage of those who, for whom all things will work together for good. And that is those who are called. To those who are called, this is again a description of who will receive the benefit. Now the Bible speaks of two kinds of calling. There is an outward and, or external call and an inward or effectual call. The outward call is what I am attempting to do right now. I am preaching to you the word of God and the word of God calls you, as it were, to certain things, calls you to believe things and obey certain things, right? That's the outward call. That's the ministry of the word. That's when you hear the gospel or when you hear the preaching of sermons or when you read your Bible, that's outside of you calling you. But there's another kind of call. There's a a call which I can't do for you and which no other man can do for you and that's called the inward or effectual call. And that inward or effectual call is God himself, God the Holy Spirit working in your heart to make you hear and believe and obey the word of God and to apply it to yourself as medicine to an illness. It's that inward and effectual call which is being described here. And we know this, by the way, from the next couple of verses. Romans chapter 8 talks about those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, God calls a people to glorify them. So the call being spoken of here is not merely the external call, but the inward call, the effectual call. The external call can be heard and ignored. People can sit under preaching of sermons their whole lives. And never believe. You may be sitting here this morning. Waiting for this miserable affair to end. That's the outward call. You can reject it. But there's an inward call. The work of God Almighty on the soul. And that work can't be rejected or resisted. But must be embraced. That's the inward call. And it's always effective. So that's the second mark then. Those who are called, 
We should look before we move on. What are some marks of being called? Have you received this effectual call? Have you been called according to God's purpose? Because remember, the benefit of all things working to your good depends upon being the people for whom that is true. And those are those who love God and those who are called by God. So, to answer the question, have you been called by God, I will ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I'm going to read them. Peter says this, giving all diligence... This is 2 Peter chapter 1. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For... If these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Do you see what Peter is saying? He is urging you to make your calling and election sure. That is to say, make certain, make certain that you have been called. This inward call. Make certain of that. And he gives us some ways to do that. There are eight of them in the passage. I'm not going to go through them all, okay? As much as you would love me to do that, I am not going to do that this morning. I'm sorry. But I'm going to list them one more time. Just eight things. Faith. Following faith is virtue. Following virtue is knowledge. And then self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Those are the marks, those are the things that those who have been called, those are the things that are operating in you, and that's the way that your life is characterized. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. By the way, Peter is not saying that these things exist in perfect measure. He's not saying that all of these things are entirely fully formed. No, but they're there. And they're working. They're progressing. There's evidence of them. Now, I want to give a warning before we move along, and that's this. Even the worst things work together for the good of God's people. But what follows from that is the other half of the equation. Even the best things will end up working to the harm of the wicked. Those who reject God, those who hate God, those who will not heed God's call, will find that in the end, even the best things will be working against them. This pertains to both temporal things, right, earthly things, and spiritual things. 
Think of temporal things. Do you remember Haman? He had a banquet because he was, he was going to kill all the Jews, right? And he had a banquet and he fattened himself up on that banquet. That feasting continued until death came. And then the bill was due. Right? You ever go to a restaurant and, and you really enjoy yourself and then the bill comes? Well, that's what it was like for Haman at this banquet, see? He feasted when he was scheming against God's people, not knowing that that very day his life would be demanded of him and the bill was due. For that banquet and all the other good things he had ever received in his life. You see, that's how it will be for the wicked on the day of their death. Every good thing they have ever received from God will have been in vain. They will have squandered it. They will have said, no, thank you, God. I'll do this all myself. But also spiritual goods will work to the detriment of the wicked. Sermons, right? Sermons will work. Sermons can actually fatten hearts. Sermons can actually drive you away from God. Sermons. Jesus had many, many occasions in which he was preaching and the crowds resisted him. Because even a good thing is of no use to bad soil. Prayers. Prayers are a great comfort to God's people. But do you know that the prayers of the righteous actually work to the harm of the wicked? I pray every day for God's kingdom to come. Implicit in that prayer is that God is going to tear down everything contrary to that kingdom. That means the wicked. Dear friend, if you are not a lover of God, I am sorry for this, but I am praying for your ruin every day. You see, the prayers of the saints actually work to the detriment of the wicked. This is true of all good things. Think of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a tremendous help and comfort to the people of God. But what does it do for they who take it without faith? Are there not warnings concerning this? You see how even a good thing works harm to the wicked. Jesus Christ himself is called a stumbling block and a stone of offense. Now to me, he is the chief cornerstone. He's the the solid rock on which I stand, but to the wicked... He's offensive and a stumbling block. Do you see how even good things can work to the harm of the wicked? So then these are the people for whom all things work for good. It is those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Our third and final point is that purpose. The purpose from which all of these privileges proceed, right? Notice that God, Paul says in this verse that these people are called according to purpose. This explains why all these other things work together. That's why all things work for your good. God's purpose is the why that links the who, God's people, and the what of God's providence. Do you see this? God's people experience good from God 
because that was God's purpose all along. He determined before he ever made you that he was going to perform good for you. Therefore, having made you, he sets about to accomplishing that good. Do you see that? God is simply working out the plan that he has always had. The word purpose here does essentially mean plan. It refers to God's eternal plan, the plan that he had before he created anything. Paul will use it again in Romans chapter 9 and verse 11 when he speaks of Jacob and Esau. Remember, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau before either of them was born. Before they had done good or evil. And here's why. Romans 9:11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. You see, God had a plan. He calls it his purpose. And he ensured that that purpose came to pass. You must understand that God's purpose is eternal. It's unchangeable. It's perfect. And God's providence, right, his governing of things, is simply his performing what he had planned. He's bringing to pass what he had beforehand decreed to bring to pass. And you must understand that it's the same powerful God bringing to pass those things as the one who decided to perform them in the first place. God's people are those who receive that privilege of God's special providence according to God's plan. Right? It's interesting. Each of us kind of likes to think that we are the center of the universe. I know you all wouldn't do that, but sometimes I'm tempted to do that. But for the Christian, there's a sense in which this is actually true. We, we have to understand that the whole universe and everything in it is governed by the God who made that universe for our good. We literally are, in that sense, the center of the universe. Everything. There's, there's not anything going on in the universe that God doesn't use for our good. You see, that's what Paul means by all things. All things work for the good of God's people. And you see now at the end of the passage that all things work for your good precisely because God has an eternal plan for your good, right? And he has called you according to that plan. That, this is the link now. You've been called into that plan, and so now you start experiencing it. When you va- face various things, no doubt you'll be tempted to forget that that particular thing, whether it's a sorrow, whether it's a difficulty, whether it is betrayal or hurt or some other thing, you'll be tempted to forget that that too is for your good. Or maybe you'll ask yourself, can this thing, even this, be for my good? Well, the first thing you have to ask is, do I love God? Am I called according to his purpose? If that's true of you, then there's only one more question to ask. Is this a thing? Is this a thing? If it's a thing, then yes, it must work for your good. Do you see that? 
Why? Because all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, our omnipotent ruler, infinite, eternal, righteous, holy, and good, O God, we confess that your ways are far too good for us to understand, but we also hope and believe, Lord God, that you will work all things for our good. You have not withheld from us your beloved Son, Therefore, we cannot imagine what good thing you would withhold from us now that we have been brought into your kingdom by him. O Lord, forgive us for when we have doubted your goodness to us. Help us to remember the goodness that you are working for us, even our glorification. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.